Welcome to The People's Lawyer, a podcast from the National Association of Attorneys General, the nonpartisan organization representing America's attorneys general. In each episode, we'll explore the role of the 56 state and territory AGs as chief legal officers for their states and their work protecting the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution. My name is Allison Gilmore, and I'm chief communications officer at the National Association of Attorneys General. In today's episode, Montana Attorney General and NAG President Tim Fox is joined by Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. I am so pleased to welcome my friend and colleague, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Welcome, General. Thank you so much for having me on, General. I really appreciate this opportunity. Well, great. We've had some great conversations with some of our colleagues, and you know, I think some of the listeners of these podcasts probably have learned a few things about uh, you know not only attorneys general offices in general, but of course maybe their own attorney general. And you know, you and I work in this area, and so it doesn't surprise us that each office is a little different, and the priorities of each attorney general might be a little different uh, from state to state to territory and District of Columbia. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm curious, before you became attorney general, you served as a criminal prosecutor and a civil rights attorney, which is a little different pedigree than I had. Uh, how did those roles inform your perspective on the duties of attorney general? Well, and actually, and in addition to that, I did a lot of work as a public defender as well. I mean, I certainly think when it comes to criminal law, and every every AG's office is different in terms of their uh, criminal jurisdiction. In Michigan, uh, we do have statewide criminal jurisdiction, so it gives me a lot of opportunity to interact with our, our 83 county prosecutors, but also we have our own criminal trials and appellate unit. But it gave me, honestly, a lot of insight uh, on both sides of the criminal justice system, um, and which I thought was incredibly helpful to the role that I have now. And I, again, I started as an assistant prosecutor and I worked uh, for the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, which is in the city of Detroit, and handled pretty much every kind of case you can imagine there. And then, you know, also on the flip side of that, doing public defense work. And I think it really allows you to see um, the best of the criminal justice system, but also the worst. So, you know, uh, where there are flaws, you're able to to easily recognize them. And, you know, and, and being AG, you have, I think, a better opportunity to fix some of those problems than you would in almost any other role you could possibly have. You know, that's great. And I didn't realize you'd been a public defender earlier in my career. I was a public defender as well. And I'm proud of that service. As you know, uh, the right to counsel is one of the important rights that Americans have. So uh, it's a little bit of a a surprise that you are both a prosecutor and a public defender, but it's actually a fairly common thing. Well, you were elected in January, or excuse me, in uh, 2018 and took office in in, uh, January of 2019. And soon after you took office, I mean, you, you hit the ground with both feet running and you launched a conviction integrity unit in Michigan. And, uh, I don't know that we don't have anything like that here in uh, our office, but I'm curious, what does that unit do and, and why did you create it? It was one of my campaign promises because I had seen a lot of cases uh, that I thought had been wrongly handled uh, during, especially during the, the trial proceedings and a lot of times unintentionally. So I think we, we tend to think of wrongful convictions as though there's some big, bad, you know, prosecutor 
or, or, you know, police chief or officer in charge of the case who's intentionally uh, driving a case against uh, a, an innocent person. And, and most of the time, the vast majority of the time, that's not the case. But there are mistakes that can occur. There are accidents that can occur. Um, there are misidentifications. Uh, there are all kinds of issues that can occur that result in innocent people, legitimately innocent people, uh, being wrongfully convicted. And so uh, I was excited to put something like this into action. When we uh, formed our unit uh, in the spring of, of uh, 2019, I think it was one of the second AG's office uh, in the nation next to uh, New Jersey who had put one together first. Uh, and so we created it in order to what I saw to further our obligation to the public and the crime victims, because let's remember every time you convict a person uh, who's innocent, there's a guilty person who's who's free somewhere uh, oftentimes. Um, but also, you know, to their families, to the accused, of course, and, and to make sure that the state has prosecuted and convicted the correct person. Uh, and so what we did, uh, we really see it as, as a furtherance of our affirmative duty as prosecutors under the Michigan Rules of Professional Conduct, which mirrors the ABA rules and, and provides in part, you know, when a prosecutor knows of clear and convincing evidence establishing that a defendant in the prosecutor's jurisdiction was convicted of an offense that the defendant did not commit, the prosecutor shall seek to remedy the conviction. So our, our mission in this unit really to investigate claims of innocence uh, and I would say actual innocence in this instance. We're not looking to see whether there were some sort of Fourth Amendment violations or something of that nature. People who actually were innocent of the crime for which they were convicted. Uh, and, you know, to, we determine whether there's clear and convincing new evidence that a convicted person was uh, not the person who committed the crime. And we make recommendations, um, you know, about an appropriate remedy. And the attorney general uh, myself in our office, you know, I, I make all the final decisions on these cases. But, you know, our, our CIU unit, it's not a court and our, our work is not governed by court rules or procedure. Um, and we, we aren't there to function as a 13th juror, you know, to review all the factual questions that have already been decided by, you know, a sworn jury. And, and again, we're not there to review legal claims of error, but it's a, it really it's just directed to determine whether new crimes uh, demonstrate that an innocent person has been wrongfully convicted and then to recommend steps to rectify these types of situations. Because, of course, only the court can actually set aside a conviction. Uh, our office doesn't have the ability to do that. Um, and so at this point, we've had uh, over 1,100 letters that we have received um, from individuals who have been convicted of felony offenses. And, and some of the writers um, did not raise actual innocent issues. And so in those cases, we try to redirect them to other places. Um, but we've now um, sent out 913 applications as a result of those inquiries. And uh, we've received 435 formal um, applications that we are currently investigating and working on. I'd say 92 of those involve uh, DNA uh, or other types of forensic evidence that can be reviewed. And we're working with a, a grant partner that we have, um, the Cooley Innocence Project, which is at a Cooley Law School, who's working with us on that. And then we've had, um, you know, a number of them have already been rejected because they, they don't fit within our, our mandate. Um, so we have a lot of cases that we're working on. We were able to just recently 
um, receive grant funding to assist us with this. So we have now hired investigators and our, our prosecutors who are actually former defense attorneys, because I, I felt as though it was important to have people who had worked on the defense side um, that had an opportunity to better understand some of these cases. Um, and we're moving forward uh, on, on all of those cases right now. And, you know, we're in the investigative process. Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see what we find. Well, that's incredible. It's, it's very impactful work. And uh, obviously, uh, making sure that our criminal justice system works, uh, you know, well and is fair is, is, you know, one of the core things that I think most, if not all of the attorney generals, are looking for. And, and you mentioned, you know, we, we always have, we've got the, the prosecution and the defense, uh, but the most important person uh, in, in all of this is the victim of crime. Uh, our office has an office of victim services, and uh, we work with uh, victims of crime. We have a victim's compensation program. And I know that your office uh, really focuses on uh, taking care of the rights of crime victims, particularly those that are the victims of violent crime. So what are some of the services that your office provide for crime victims? Well, I have to say I was a little surprised when I got into the office because uh, we have over 500 people on staff, uh, attorneys and um, investigators and support staff. Um, and uh, we only had one victim advocate in the office, which was, was surprising to me because we do handle a number of types of criminal cases. So one of my new initiatives was to add as many uh, victim advocates as possible. So we added, um, and some of this with the help of the legislature, who also saw the importance of this, we added a number of uh, of. Uh, advocates, victims' rights advocates that just worked with the victims. We added a number of them to our elder abuse unit. Um, understanding, and a lot of the kinds of cases uh, we handle, I, they're really what's known as vertical prosecutions, where instead of having a different person handling every part of the case, we generally try to have one assistant AG that handles it from the very beginning, uh, starting with the the warrant stage or even during the investigative part of the proceeding, uh, all the way up through sentencing. Um, when we get to the appellate stage, we often have somebody else handle the case uh, in our department. However, we always have the same victim advocate working with them all the way through. So elder abuse, uh, is when you're working with um, seniors and other vulnerable adults, we find it very, very important that they have consistency with that and have, uh, I would say, a lot of handholding through the process. Because, you know, as you know, General, the uh, the criminal justice system can be very difficult to navigate. There are so many complexities uh, in the proceedings. And so we, we think it's really important to have somebody there with them every step of the way. So we, we added people to the elder abuse unit. We added victims advocates to our sexual assault unit. Um, and, and the reason why it was so important for us to have new advocates in our sexual assault unit, because what we added to that was our clergy abuse investigation, uh, which includes um, uh, in fall, actually, it's been exactly two years since we had um, uh, seven search warrants that were simultaneously executed on the, each of the dioceses in our state. And so we compiled millions and millions of documents, um, both um, paper documents and electronic documents. Uh, and we've now charged today 
I believe that was the 10th clergy member that we have charged since our investigation started. We've actually identified, um, uh, really unfortunately, hundreds and hundreds of victims and many um, serial abusers. And so we try to provide uh, victims advocates not, not only for the cases that we're able to charge, because um, with our statute of limitations, unfortunately, we've identified many, many cases where um, we would have proceeded on those cases, but for the fact that the statute of limitations did not allow us to do so. But we still try to provide um, assistance to those individuals. Um, we have, um, you, I'm sure a lot of people around the country are familiar with the Flint water crisis investigation um, where you had uh, a city of uh, 100,000 people, um, you know, the city of Flint, um, where when water was switched over from one water system to another water system that hadn't been utilized, uh, the pipes were not treated properly and it resulted in, um, you know, tens of thousands of people who were subject to lead poisoning. So uh, we have um, uh, victim advocates that work with some of those individuals when they need assistance and can help them navigate where to get different kinds of help, whether it's medical help uh, or whether it's some sort of educational assistance for children or what have you. Um, And then in our general criminal division, we actually added some victims advocates too. So you know, they help find um, community support uh, for for various different needs that they have. Um, and, of course, they help correspond with the uh, assistant AG who's prosecuting the case. Uh, and sometimes they have other issues. Um, I would say human trafficking in particular, our victims often have a lot of needs, whether it's, you know, housing or employment or drug and alcohol issues. And so the the community advocates just can help in a lot of different ways where our assistant AGs, um, you know, who they're not social workers, they're lawyers, so they don't really have the same aptitude uh, as these um, advocates have. So we feel like the more services a crime victim receives, the more likely they'll be able to not just participate in the criminal justice process to make us more successful in pursuing uh, whoever the perpetrator of these crimes or but also to get some of these people back on their feet in a play, in a way that they really need because their life was upended uh, by a crime. For many years, uh, unfortunately, our criminal justice system across the country uh, didn't focus on, uh, you know, the trauma that victims of crime would experience. And, you know, certainly we wanted to prosecute the bad guys and, you know, put people in jail or prison as the need might be. Uh, but, you know, as a society, it's good to know that we're getting better and we got a long ways to go, I believe, in all of our jurisdictions in, in helping crime victims. But uh, that's great work that you're doing there in Michigan. You know, we, it's only in my lifetime that we've thought about environmental crimes <clears throat> and many of the environmental laws, both on a national and state level, have been enacted, you know, during my lifetime. You're much younger than I am, but, and I know that you care deeply about uh, the environment, not just in Michigan, but across our great country. And I, I understand that you recently expressed your support for legislation to protect Michigan uh, residents from chemicals known as PFAS. And I, I have to admit, even though I was an environmental lawyer for many years for the state, I had to go look that up, and I'm I'm not going to make you pronounce what 
PFAS means, I'm going to try it, polyfluoroalkyl substances. Um, I'm guessing that many of our... You did a good job than I do. (laughs) Well, uh, I I thought it'd be better for the interviewer to embarrass himself rather than the interviewee. But uh, I'm guessing many of our... Our listeners have never heard of this term and don't know what this substance is, and and certainly probably many of them don't know what your office is doing to address uh, this important issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about this work that you're doing? Yeah, and thanks for asking. I'm happy to talk about this. And and if you, unfortunately, I would say if you're in a state where you don't know about this uh, very much, it's it's not because this isn't a problem in your state, it's likely because your state just hasn't done a lot of testing. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there were just a lot of different products that were produced by by chemical manufacturers um, that in in all kinds of everyday products that we use uh, that contain these chemicals. And, and I will say this, this is just my general perspective in terms of prosecuting environmental crimes. We, we talked already about how um, you know, I, I worked as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney. And, you know, in Michigan, uh, we have uh, an offense called um, assault with intent to do great bodily harm. And you, know, you can go to prison for, for 10 years for that offense. Uh, and it's, it's, it's an assault with intent to do less than murder, really, but still to, to cause substantial harm to someone. And I think what really bothered me is I saw in a lot of these environmental cases, cases where you had, uh, whether they were chemical manufacturers or whether they were other kinds of companies that were manufacturing products, that they knew um, their products were, were dangerous and they were leaching into the environment and people who were uh, consuming the, say, water that these products leached into were, you know, getting very sick and in many cases dying. And I couldn't understand why it would be a crime if you put some poison into one person's water and they and you knew you put it in their water and they drank the water and you could go to prison for that. But if you put uh, dangerous toxins and chemicals into the water systems of tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people, uh, knowing that that would go into a water supply, knowing people would drink it and knowing people would get very sick and yet nothing would happen to you. And it didn't make any sense to me at all. So we did a lot of testing in our state and we found that this chemical that you're talking about, PFAS, um, they're a group of chemicals that are persistent in the environment and in the human body and they don't break down over time. They're called forever chemicals. That's how they've been uh, sort of um, labeled because you know they, they've been used globally uh, in, in the past century in manufacturing, and I would say firefighting foam contains um, a ton of PFAS, and, but lots of, uh, of common household and, and consumer products as well. But, you know, it's in these recent years, um, and I think, honestly, for a long time, experts have known about how incredibly harmful the serious uh, impacts are of somebody who has been ingesting PFAS over the course of a, a lengthy period of time. So, I mean, it runs down the gamut. Decreased fertility, um, pregnancy-induced hypertension, liver disease, thyroid disease, cholesterol issues. Uh, you know, it causes uh, a person to become immunocompromised, and it substantially increases the likelihood of cancer, especially kidney cancer and testicular cancer. So, you know, what we, what we did when I took office is 
it was a, a huge priority of mine to, to move forward on many of these cases, in, in part because I knew that it was going to be so expensive once we identified the many different places where we had, um, you know, sites where it was clear that we had PFAS contamination. I just don't believe in making the taxpayers have to pay to pay up to, to clean up those sites and for remediation. I think that it should be done by the manufacturers. Um, I just sort of subscribe to the you made the mess. Now you clean it up kind of theory of government. And so we filed in January um, of, of 2020. Uh, we filed a lawsuit against over a dozen manufacturers uh, of PFAS, and that includes 3M and DuPont for costs and damages to the state um, involving PFAS-containing materials that ended up in Michigan's environment. And we have uh, a case that is in, pending right now in, in Kent County, which is where Grand Rapids is. Um, and we were able to recently overcome several motions to dismiss claims against um, almost all of the defendants. And we're moving forward with discovery, which was um, not an easy task if you are familiar with Michigan law in this area. Uh, we have um, AFFF uh, cases that involves firefighting foam uh, that are pending both in, in Ingham County, where Lansing is, and federal court. Um, and uh, in August, we filed a, a pair of complaints in state and federal court to recover state damages and the cost of uh, contamination for, for those types of substances. And we're, you know, we're seeking in terms of the kind of damages, you know, not just uh, monetary damages, but, you know, remediation costs and, and other kinds of relief, including, you know, assistance for people whose health has been compromised. And uh, and we recently had a, a case that we settled um, with uh, Wolverine Worldwide in their disposal of uh, scotch guard from waterproofing shoe leather decades ago. Um, that was just heartbreaking for families who only drink that water uh, contaminated with toxic chemicals for, for years. So we brought and then resolved litigation uh, and ultimately the company had to replace the water supply for about a thousand homes. Um, and so we're, we're really happy that we were able to get that resolved. Uh, and so we're going to, we're going to continue to proceed on these types of matters and, um, you know, do whatever it takes to make sure that, I mean, we we're called the great lake state. Uh, Michigan is surrounded by 21% of the Earth's fresh surface water. And it's just so sad and unfortunate to me that there are so many Michigan residents that don't have access to clean drinking water under those circumstances. And so we just have to be better. I mean, I, I know there's so many things that we disagree on now and, and, you know, the world is so polarized, America is so polarized, but I think that we all can agree that each and every one uh, of our, you know, state residents here in Michigan and, and nationally across the board deserve to be able to have clean and safe drinking water for their families. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, a, a whole number of things came to mind as you were answering that question, uh, particularly there at the end when you were talking about the Michigan lakes. Um, my uh, mother's sister, my aunt Doris and her husband, lived near Ann Arbor on a lake and we used to visit there and I actually spent uh, a month or so there one summer and my my uncle taught me how to sail on a little boat um, and I just remember how idyllic that was to be able to live on a lake uh, and it seemed so pristine clean um, 
And, you know, we have the largest Superfund fund site in America is in Montana. It's in Butte, Montana, and it's an open pit copper mine called the Berkeley Pit that is full of uh, water that has heavy metals that's accumulated in it. And uh, we're, my office has been heavily involved in, in uh, environmental negotiations with uh, the successors of the companies that originally operated that mine. And we're almost set to get a court to uh, approve a consent decree in a large portion of that case. So we also uh, really uh, want our environment in Montana to be uh, what it could be, and we want to hold those responsible that have contaminated it. So great work that you're doing there. So your office recently announced it was seeking to dissolve 10 fraudulent entities for failing to comply with state nonprofit and charity laws. And Montana also regulates uh, nonprofits through our Office of Consumer Protection. Would you visit with us a little bit about the role of an attorney general in monitoring and regulating charities? Most of us who, you know, who have the opportunity or the, the ability to be able to donate to uh, a charity of our choice, I mean, I think it's so important that donors need to be able to trust that their gifts are being properly used. Uh, and, and that it's a, it's, it's the, a charity really is what it purports to be. And the money goes where you think it's going. Um, and, you know, we want people to be able to donate to charities, right? I mean, it's, it's just so, so important. Uh, I used to run a, um, uh, a 501c3, and, you know, there, there's nothing worse than when people lose faith uh, in, in giving to charities. So we, we want to make sure that we serve as the first line of defense, really, when it comes to protecting charitable assets in Michigan. And, um, you know, we have, unfortunately, in Michigan, we have broad common law and also statutory authority to do that. So we have the Supervision of Trustees for Charitable Purposes Act. And that provides the attorney general the authority to protect charitable interests within the state. And that includes, you know, supervisory, investigative and also enforcement powers. And uh, we have the Dissolution of Charitable Purposes Corporations Act. And that requires dissolving charities uh, to notify the AG before filing their dissolution paperwork or any other uh, with any other kind of state agency or, or court. And that really allows our office to have the opportunity to ensure that any residual charitable assets are, are properly disposed of uh, to other charitable purposes, not, not used for somebody's private benefit. Because, uh, you know, the risk to charitable assets in our charitable trust section, you know, we review all of those transactions. And we also have the uh, Michigan Nonprofit Corporation Act, and that prohibits the use of charitable assets for non-charitable purposes. So, you know, just in simple terms, the money has to follow uh, the purposes for which the nonprofit was set up. So what our office does is we provide support and protection for charities, um, you know, through regulation and guidance, but also with registration and annual reporting requirements. So our regulatory role, it, it includes investigations, it includes enforcement responsibilities, and that really reaches beyond the corporate entity uh, to also include the office uh, officers and directors of a nonprofit. Um, and so we, we also, the other thing we do, and uh, this is proven to me to be so interesting because this was not something that was sort of in the bailiwick of uh, disciplines that I had ever practiced, but it extends over the mergers and sales 
of charitable nonprofit corporations. Um, and so we actually have a lot of cases that are pending right now involving hospital mergers. And I mean, that is something, you know, a, a hospital um, and is so critical to what I say to the health of a community. I guess that's a bad pun, but, but really um, it's just absolutely critical that when you have the sale uh, of, a, of an enormous uh, health agency or health organization, as, as we've had happen several times just since I've been in office in Michigan, that people understand that the charitable assets are protected. Um, and so when we learn that there's a proposed transaction and it might impact those charitable assets, our office has to take appropriate action and just absolutely ensure that those assets are properly protected and we remain involved even afterwards in the post-transaction monitoring so we can see that everything is happening the way it was supposed to happen. Um, so, you know, it's quite, it's quite a large role. Uh, and we've, we've had, a, you know, a number of different cases that we've had to review outside of uh, the hospital mergers uh, and in terms of various different um, uh, entities that we have had to investigate and, and seek to dissolve uh, under a number of different circumstances. So this has really kept us busy, but obviously no matter how big or small those charitable assets are, we wanna make sure that they're properly protected. We, as I mentioned, have similar roles here at uh, the Montana Department of Justice. We, uh, we oversaw the liquidation of our Blue Cross Blue Shield here, which was a nonprofit, obviously. And um, our office created a foundation, which is, has received about $200 million. Uh, and, of course, there, that money is being used for uh, supporting and advocating for the health of uh, Montanans. So it's great work that you're doing there in Michigan. Well, General, you, you've spent a significant amount of your time uh, practicing law as a public servant. And of course, you still have many years left as Michigan's attorneys general. And when you've been in private practice, you've, you've, you've served others in, in public interest law. And my, my parents raised me to believe that there, it's a high calling to serve others. And, and I know you feel that that's important in, in your personal and professional life. What kind of advice would you have for say a young lawyer or maybe a a law student who's looking at their options for what they'd like to do uh, in the future, what would you say to them about public service and also public interest law? Well, you know, it's funny uh, when I get these questions occasionally when I'm talking to law school students, because things were so different um, for me when I went to law school and I suspect for you as well, general, in that, um, I went to uh, a public uh, law school. I went to Wayne State University, which is in um, the city of Detroit. And I, I worked my way through, uh, through law school. And it was honestly, it was, I, I, could, I could, you know, work part time and pay for the cost of my tuition and my books. And things just at some point really changed. And I see, I see kids nowadays that have the most substantial loans. Uh, and it makes me very sad because I was able to go right from 
uh, right from law school. And actually, one of my um, clerical roles while I was in law school was working at the prosecutor's office so that I ended up um, working at for, for some 11 years. And I, I just wanted to do something I loved and that interested me, but I also felt like I was making a difference in helping the community. And I was able to do that because I, I didn't have these egregious and, and you know, uh, I mean, so, you know, I mean, I talked to, I talked to law school students that have a hundred or $200,000 in outstanding student loans. And they'll say to me sometimes, well, well, what do I do? I'd like to work uh, as a public servant, but I don't know if I can afford that. And then I'll hear about their loans and I'll say, I also don't know if you can afford that. Maybe you just have to get whatever the job is that pays the most money. But what I do always tell people is if you are in a situation and you really want to do public interest law and you find that you can't, at least always make sure that you're using your law degree in some ways, even if it's just when you're working at a firm or something and they allow you to do some pro bono work, always make sure that you're doing something that you really love and that makes you feel like you're making a difference in the world. Whatever the thing is that drives you the most, make sure you're somehow allowing your law degree to further whatever that interest is. Because if you if you're just working simply for, you know, how many billable hours you can get in uh, and, and how, you know, how much money you can make, you're never really going to be happy with your job. And I talked to so many uh, of my colleagues that I graduated from law school with who, who, you know, they, they went to some of the big firms and they did quite well for themselves for a while, but it, it didn't last because they ultimately just didn't have that self sense of, of self-satisfaction that they were doing something that they really loved. And uh, a lot of them burned out very quickly and ultimately didn't even end up practicing law at all, went into some completely different area. So I would really tell people, even even if you can't just go and, and get a job where you work for a nonprofit or get a job where you're, you know, uh, at some sort of a government agency of some sort that you really enjoy working at, at least do something, you know, have some part of your law school education that goes towards doing something that makes you feel like you make a difference because you're going to enjoy being a lawyer so much more if you if you do that. Well, thank you. That's that's great advice, uh, I think. And uh, we hope that uh, uh, many will will listen to that. And, and I agree, you know, the cost of education, of legal education in particular, has just become astronomical. Um, but, well, you know, uh, General Nessel, you've been very kind with your time. I have really enjoyed this conversation. I want to thank you for all the bipartisan work you do through the National Association Attorneys General on so many things, along with all of our other 54 colleagues across the nation. And uh, my time as Attorney General is coming to an end at the end of this year. Uh, I know you'll carry on, and I'll be active in the Society of Attorneys General Emeritus, and I'll look forward to seeing you sometime down the road. I'm glad that you're going to stay involved with that because, um, you know, obviously you're a great asset to, to NAG. And uh, it's good that you'll be around in some capacity or another. And, you know, if I could just close with this, because we are at such a strange point, I think, in the history of, uh, of the United States. I spent a long time before I became AG talking to uh, a former AG. His name was Frank Kelly, and he served for 37 and a half years as Michigan Attorney General. And uh, he only recently eclipsed by um, 
Tom Miller in Iowa for, for the longest serving state attorney general. And, um, you know, he would tell me stories about, I think, a time when things were less polarized and the state AGs used to work together much more so than I think they do right now. And that makes me sad. And I think it's a loss, quite honestly, for, for all of us, because we have so much to learn from one another. And it shouldn't matter if we have an R or a D next to our name. It shouldn't matter if we're in what's known as a blue state or a red state. So many of these issues are just issues about helping our constituents, helping not just our state residents, but all Americans. And I know we do a lot of that work together, but to me, not enough. And I hope there there comes a time, um, at least in my career, where we start to work together um, more so like like we used to do maybe back 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, because I, I think it's a real loss, the whole country, um, you know, working together less just because uh, the political parties are more polarized. So I really hope to see that in my career. And uh, and I I hope that that becomes back, that comes back in fashion again one day soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The People's Lawyer. We look forward to bringing you additional insights about the work of state attorneys general, including conversations with individual AGs about important legal issues in future episodes. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at naag.org or email podcast at nag.org.